Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Robert Baird, Sales Director with Easy Debit, part of Global Payment Incorporated. It's wonderful to have you along today. I really enjoyed meeting Robert and getting to know more about Easy Debit and their success story growing from an Australian company to now being acquired by a US-based global business. And Robert's got a fascinating personal story himself and some very interesting views on what makes successful leadership. But before I introduce Robert to you properly, let me briefly introduce myself for those of you who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any vacancies in your team that we can assist with, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you about that. Let me now introduce to you Rob. Robert Baird is originally from the United Kingdom, however he's now based in Brisbane, Australia. And he's the Sales Director with Easy Debit, part of Global Payments Incorporated. Global Payments Incorporated is a leading worldwide provider of payment technology services that delivers innovative solutions driven by customer needs globally. Headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, with more than 8,500 employees worldwide, Global Payments is a member of the S&P 500 with merchants and partners in 29 countries throughout North America, Europe, the Asia Pacific region and Brazil. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Robert Baird. Well, uh, Rob, welcome to the Arate Podcast. It's great to have a chat to you today on what is a very beautiful Friday afternoon in uh, autumn in Brisbane. Uh, perhaps just to begin the conversation, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your current professional responsibilities? Thanks, Richard. Um, yeah, this is a lovely Friday afternoon and I really shouldn't be here. I should be out sailing. Oh, really? That's your thing, is it? Which I'd really like to be doing. My professional responsibilities are I lead the... I guess uh, the go-to-market strategy for global payments here in Australasia. Okay. And what? Tell us about global payments. Global payments are our leader in payment technologies worldwide. Mm -hmm. They're listed on the stock exchange in the United States, Fortune 1000. Um, they purchased Easy Debit, which was a private business here in 2014. Okay. Um, and uh, we're going to market with two brands, Easy Debit and eWay, which is a leading e-commerce application. Global Payments bought them just after they bought Easy Debit. Uh -huh. And as a consequence, we're molding those two brands to be a uh, seamless payment provider, I guess, in the cloud under the Global Payments brand over the next two or three years. Okay. And so prior to the acquisition, 
you were in the easy debit business. Was eWay on the scene or that was completely separate? Yeah, so um, easy debit was a private business, pretty much a startup founded in 1998. Mm -hmm. Um, When I joined, there were 19 people in the business. Right. With a turnover of about 8 mil. Okay. So we've grown that over the period of time and obviously we're attractive to global payments because global payments didn't have an Australasian footprint for its payments. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was not really a global payments brand excluding Australasia. Right. So they bought us as a, as a good option to get a foothold in, in, uh, in the market. Um, eWay was something that we chose to buy to round out our overall cloud-based payment strategy. Okay. And uh, in terms of the remit for your actual role here, you're mm-hmm. overseeing essentially all of the sales function? Yeah, so I uh, oversee. So I sit on the executive team, um, and uh, I'm responsible for the uh, gross profit and gross revenue lines of the P&L. Mm-hmm. Um, again, with the sales force costs and promotional costs around that, um, we have uh, about 52 salespeople in the sales team. Mm-hmm. Um, split into three sort of uh, channels, which is enterprise sales. Yep. Um, partnership sales where we're selling to partners who can resell our product if you like mm-hmm. and merchant sales and merchants is the word we give our customers so um, that's when we're selling directly to the end customers not through a particular partner and the end customer being somebody who uh, in turn to their own customers are setting up uh, recurring payment schedules it can be any form of payment so I think the overall strategy is is that we want to go to market as global payments and mm-hmm. we want to um, have the two platforms easy debit and eway molded into the one which we've nearly completed mm-hmm. what that does it gives us um, best-in-class cloud payment technology um, with omni-channel payment channels okay which is our competitive position moving forward so any merchant or customer who's looking for electronic payment methodologies can come to the one supplier who can provide best-in-class infrastructure and payment technologies supported by payment consultancy and I imagine that's everything from a small business coach right through to you know a significant corporate Yes, so that's why we've split split our sales process or go-to-market strategy into three. Merchant sales is uh, for those small SMEs of any size who are looking to uh, have those payment options uh, for their businesses. Um, the partnership approach where we're integrating our API payment technologies into independent software vendors that sit in front of key verticals mm-hmm. that we want to sell to. Um, and it's that uh, partnershiping that drives business value because we're integrating our payment technology into the industry's uh, payment um, software product, um, and that drives significant business process benefits rather than just payments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because we have um, sophisticated infrastructure from PCI compliance, data centers, uh, robust processing platforms and skills, we're really selling that as infrastructure as service into the mid-market enterprise uh, marketplace where they can ill afford to do it themselves. Okay, great. Well, we'll talk, no doubt, uh, a lot more about that a little later in this conversation, but let's go yes, back to where it all began now and tell us a little bit about where you were born and early life, mum and dad growing up, etc. That's a nice thing to talk about, Richard. <laughs> um, I'm actually originally English. 
Um, and I'm still very English. I right. just enjoy living here in Australia. Have you become an Aussie? I am a very passionate Australian citizen. Right. So in all things except cricket, rugby, and uh, a number of other uh, sports. But I, um, I asked somebody the other day, and they said they were a posse. A Palm Aussie. Aussie, yeah. Yeah. Look, I don't change. I'm pretty consistent about who I am, but I'm a very passionate Australian. I love the Australian culture, the openness, the optimism, the outdoorsness of it, and the straightforwardness of communications. I enjoy that. Having said that, I do have an English background, so um, to some I can seem a little formal. Right. but I'm not really. Um, so I was born in um, 1964, which makes me 52 uh-huh. years young, um, in the country, um, and grew up in the country on a sort of uh, old uh, English house with um, pigs, horses, chickens, um, ditches, and rambling fields. Were your parents farmers, or they just enjoyed that as more of a hobby? They enjoyed that as a hobby. They, right. uh, my dad was a, uh, an accountant, and my mum was a stay-at-home mum with four kids. Okay. But we had a very rural upbringing, I guess. Right. And um, went to the local village school, and then was sent away to boarding school, as were all of my family. And out of the four children, what number were you? I was the, um, I was the second. I have one, daughter, uh, one uh, sister who's a couple of years older, and I've got two younger brothers. Okay. And so boarding school, was that uh, close to home, or was that at the big in London or somewhere? No, right? that was in Suffolk, which is the next-door county. Okay. Um, so it was about 50 miles away. And yep. again, it was a big old Victorian public school, they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, Set in the countryside. Okay. I had a great time. Great. And uh, and then from uh, boarding school, did you go straight to university? or No, I went travelling for a bit. So um, I actually got a job as a sports coach in Cambridge. Okay. And Coaching what? Uh, rugby, hockey, all physical education at a boys' school. Okay. Um, which was great fun. And then I travelled to Australia and... Um, when I was 18 and um, hitchhiked around and fell in love with it. Right. And was the intention back then that you wanted to move into a teaching type career? Um, No, I quite enjoyed the teaching profession. I thought it was a very positive thing, but having done it for a year, I felt that I'd just be repeating that for 30 years. So I think I got an awful lot out of it um, in that one year. Right. And I thought uh, really I'd, I'd, I'd done it. Right. So you're travelling around Australia with your mates? No, I just turned up on my own with okay. 200 bucks. Right. Hitchhiked around. Yeah. Got into some strife and some adventures, but it was good fun. <laughs> and did you pick up some uh, jobs along the way to, uh, you know, increase your uh, wallet? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, did some tomato picking up in Bowen. Right. Um, I worked in a, as a hotel cleaner uh, around Cairns, and I worked for the Soul Brothers Circus in Darwin. Oh, yeah. Okay. And travelled in from uh, Darwin to... Um, Alice Springs working for the circus for three weeks. Wow, so you really left home to join the circus. I did, yeah. Wow, yeah. fantastic. I, I was the clown and uh, the muckerader of the camels and elephants. Okay. There's a very famous Brisbane dentist who is now a, cli- a clown with Cirque du Soleil. Have you heard that story? Oh, no, I haven't. Yeah, he's, a, he's quite a character uh, yeah. and taken his clowning profession to the highest level. And so um, after your little adventure in Australia, was it back home to the UK? I went back to the UK and I went to university at the University of Kent at Canterbury mm-hmm. and I did economics and geography there mm-hmm. and played lots of sport and had a great time. Okay. What was the attraction to economics and geography as uh, subjects? It was the only thing I got good grades for to get into a good university for. Okay, so right. um, I quite like the geography because I like the systematic thinking that brings. Yeah. 
um, cause and effect, making sure that you're looking at the whole picture, not a component part. Mm-hmm. And the economics was always interesting to me because you had some very fixed models that allowed you to understand things through. Mm-hmm. So I think the combination of the two was quite interesting. Okay. Um, and I always liked the um, the environment too. So geography, it wasn't about rivers. It was about um, you know how man impacts the space around him. Mm-hmm. So I found that quite interesting. Right. And what was the... Uh your intention whilst you were studying in terms of your career? What kind of things were you attracted to? Um, Well, I've always been a salesperson, to be honest. Um, I was interested in the environment, Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't, it was more process orientated than people orientated. Probably didn't pay very well either. So um, it was really a more general education. I can't say I had a very clear view on what I was going to be when I was 18 to 22, 23. Right. What I knew I wanted to be was well-rounded, able to communicate, and well-educated. And uh, and so what happened after you graduated? After I graduated, um, I did some different things at uni too. I traveled to Asia and India again on my own mm-hmm. for about four or five months. And okay. to be frank, that was a quite an epiphany. Right. So I have to say, I probably wasn't awake intellectually until I came back from India. So what what specifically uh, woke you up? Um, The vibrancy of life and death. Uh Um, And it really switched my mind on. I think I was probably learning in a British conservative way up until that point. And then I became awakened to the fact that I had my own intellect and I could think for myself. That's interesting. And I could create and analyze the world in a quite a different way. And was that tied to a more religious, spiritual type um, consideration or was it completely it was, an intellectual consideration? It, well, it was completely holistic. It brought right. all of those things together. And okay. I think that was the main change is that you can, from a Western perspective, you can think logically and critically um, and you can end up with some very reasonable um, propositions. Mm-hmm. Um, if you try and mould some uh, spirituality in there too, uh, one doesn't disclude the other. It's the moulding of the two gives a better balance around the output of thought there. And I think that was a major change for me. Fantastic. And so uh, where did that lead you to uh, career-wise? This is going to be very frank. I was actually um, part of the armed forces at university. Okay. In a um, cadet type? Yeah, I was sponsored by the university okay, yeah. uh, to do a short-term commission. Right. And um, I actually resigned from that because I'd started thinking for myself, and whilst I have great respect for the military, um, there is a point where they actually need you to stop thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came to, came to the realisation that it was my duty not to stop thinking. Right. Um, period. Uh-huh. And, and anything that really was encouraging the, uh, the prevention of um, thought probably wasn't going to have a really good outcome Okay. for me personally. Right. So what? Uh, where did your thinking go then in terms of you, you had a passion for sales and you, know, you yeah. had these great experiences? So, um, so um, I, after my resignation, and it was the right decision uh, for me at the time, I then went to London and I took a telesales job. Okay. Um, and I lived in a shitty little bedsit somewhere right. in North London. Yeah. 
um, and I hit the phones every day selling um, what were the first mobile phones, right? Which were Vodafone AA phones, which were the size of a car battery, yeah, and I cost those. and cost three and a half thousand quid. <laughs> and it wasn't long after that that you uh, you ended up returning to Australia. So then I worked. Um, I worked for a company called Manpower, which is an American employment services yes. company. Well, well familiar with that one. Um, and I worked for them in London, and then I decided to come back out to Australia on a working visa, and I joined Manpower in North Sydney, mm -hmm. and was quite successful there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was able to stay in Australia, and then I moved to Brisbane and set up a um, Manpower branch in Brisbane. Right. Um, and I worked there for a while, and then after that, I then joined Unilever, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is an Anglo-Dutch consumer goods business, mm -hmm. and I worked for Unilever for 10 years. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and remaining in Brisbane that entire period? No, I moved between Sydney and uh, Brisbane, so I, um, the senior roles for that organisation were in Sydney. Yeah. Um, I really liked Brisbane, um, so I was transferred to uh, Sydney twice right and finally uh, on the uh, on the second time I said I'd rather live in Brisbane than uh -huh. work for Unilever and Unilever more sort of uh, cleaning products and uh, sort of uh yeah. Pharmaceutical type stuff, correct? Yeah, so uh, Unilever are one of the world's largest consumer goods companies or FMCG companies. Mm -hmm. So they own brands such as um, Lipton Tea, mm -hmm. uh, Dove. Um, washing detergents, so they've got a whole range of uh, consumer goods right across the world. Um, yeah. And then to Simplot, Simplot being, if I remember, they're more in food, aren't they? Yeah, so again, Simplot um, was a similar company. It was a private American company run out of the United States. They bought um, businesses and brands here in Australia. Um, mainly to support the potato market for McDonald's because they okay. had the global McDonald's market. Right. So they bought all of the um, uh, a number of brands, John West, you know, um, Four and Twenty Pies, Bird's Eye, things mm -hmm. like that. Again, consumer goods, selling to supermarkets. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked there. So I resigned from Unilever and moved back to Queensland uh, with Simplot um, as their category manager and state manager, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then off uh, in 2004 to Bundaberg Brewed Drinks. Yeah, well, that's fabulous. So uh, Bundaberg Brewed Drinks is uh, a, a family business that was um, performing very well because it had a unique brewed soft drink proposition. Mm -hmm. um, and I joined them as their uh, national sales manager, becoming their sales director. Um, and I worked there for three and a half, four years. Right. Um, and we tripled the business in that time. Okay. And uh, they went through quite a significant uh, rebrand and a whole heap of things during that period, didn't they? Yeah, so we relaunched the brand. Uh, one of the things was they were a family business that were struggling um, with the level of expertise internally to really take uh, advantage of their key brand proposition. So they needed professional managers to take their business forward. Mm -hmm. And there was a range of managers, including a new CEO, myself, um, and the marketing manager to take that business forward. So very, very quickly, there were some very easy wins to make just by doing um, the poor well. Sure. Um, and, and that probably started driving our growth because the brand had very strong cues itself, mm -hmm. and we just had to tease those out. So mm -hmm. not only did we drive the brand to be the uh, the, the fastest-growing um, 
brand in the beverage category in Australasia. We also set in motion an export strategy to a range of different countries. Um, and we focused on Hong Kong, China, South Africa, the UK and the United States. Mm, fantastic. Mm. And so it was at that point then you really had quite a substantive career shift moving in out of this FMCG consumer yeah. product space into yeah. you know, what was um, Easy Debit. So tell yeah, us a little massive. bit about um, you know, what led to that. Yeah, I'll be very frank, because I'm not scared. Um, <laughs> Nothing to be scared of here. Um, no, I guess my point is is that um, when you have a range of professional managers operating in a family business, mm-hmm. you do get some areas of conflict, mm-hmm. particularly around sort of um, strategy and execution. Yep. Um, and uh, one of the family members was the operating manager. Okay. Uh, and I was a sales director and obviously had to align our operating uh, strategies with the, the needs of key customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, which we found problematic. Um, also, I think uh, as the business started to grow, I think uh, there were increased frictions between the professional management team and family members. Mm-hmm. Um, and one such family member, I guess the, the CEO I was reporting to, um, left mm-hmm. uh, for that very reason, mm-hmm. um, which uh, created some further issues. So they were looking to appoint a new CEO, and uh, I guess uh, there was myself and the operations manager that were under consideration. Okay. And the operation manager was the son-in-law of the chairman. Right. And the owner. Uh-huh. And the end result is, is they went the family route yep. and um, backed away from professional management. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a consequence, uh, I saw my time as numbered, given the fact that I had a poor relationship with the operating manager. Mm-hmm. And so what uh, was it that uh, originally attracted you to the EasyDebit um, business? Because uh, it was very small, you know, it was a completely different industry to what you're used to. What, yeah. where, what did you see as the opportunity? Well, I was sick of working with very large multinationals at the time. Okay. Uh, and that's why I really enjoy working with Bundaberg, which was a family business and can utilise my skills and experience. Mm-hmm. Um, right across the business to move it forward, and it and it did. So, having sort of flexed my wings in that environment and saw what impact I could have in the smaller business, the appeal of Easy Debit was that they were pretty flat in the water. Okay, they weren't moving. They had very cl- uh, very poor vision, very poor processes. How old was the business at that stage? Um, it was a good. Um, it was. Nine years old, okay. but it hit. It, you know, it got out of that startup stage, yeah. and it wasn't moving forward. Right, it was starting to flounder for mm-hmm. much the same reasons. Is that some of the owners were the directors uh-huh. and were the managers, yeah. and they just didn't have the commercial vision. Um, nor the business processes to put into play to execute. Mm-hmm. So it was floundering in my view. Mm-hmm. So the appeal was that I could actually be uh, involved in that business and make a good contribution and make it happen fairly quickly. Okay. The second thing that appealed to me, they were going to pay me very well. Right. Well, it's always a, a handy uh, attribute to any role, isn't it? Uh, you don't do it for free. No? no? Well, uh, they, you know, when they say, uh, if you uh, were working for no money, would you still do what you do? I always find that a bit of a weird question. Because I think most people, at the end of the day, keep their work and their their private you know lives mm. uh, fairly separate. And mm. so, um, you know, almost ten years in the role now. Uh, yeah. If you think over that period, what would you regard as being some of the uh, you know the key milestones, uh, the the things that were achieved that you're most proud of? Oh, well, I think the, the one of the things has to be, and it's never you alone. Um, it's the team. I think I've created a high-performing team and ethic 
that has carried this business regardless of headwinds and tailwinds Mm -hmm. over the last uh, nine years. And that's a principled approach around performance management. Um, And I think I've got the respect of my staff and uh, the industry Mm -hmm. in terms of what we've achieved. And I've done that in a very ethical, methodical way. I care about people deeply, and uh, that allows you to to have those tough conversations and um, ensure that people reach their personal goals through their work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say that's probably my key, uh, the key thing I'm proud of personally. And then there's all of those commercial things that you know look good on resumes. Yeah, we've um, we've grown the business from 10 million to close to 100 million in that time. Mm-hmm. So we've doubled the business every three years. Mm-hmm. Um, with limited new product, and that's all about delivering a sophisticated uh, digital revenue engine, mm-hmm. utilising modern capability and professional salespeople. Okay. And how transferable did you find your experience from FMCG moving into this new industry? Did you find a lot of the fundamentals mm. were very much the same, or mm. did you need to in some way reinvent the way that you were going to market? Um, I think that's... a well, again, if I go back to everything I've done before, from a FMC point of view, you are involved in uh, sales, business to business sales, yeah, um, consumer and business to business marketing. Okay. So um, the skills that I learnt, particularly at Unilever, um, and executed at, at Bundaberg and Simplot, if you like, were absolutely transferable here because um, the unison between sales marketing. Um, category management, if you like, are absolutely fundamental in a modern sales process. Mm-hmm. Um, and that modern sales process includes, you know, a process-driven sales, um, aligned to a digital marketing program, sophisticated uh, infrastructure and sales force, marketo, digital marketing capabilities, website, etc. Mm-hmm. So my background in systems thinking from a sort of geography and economic point of view, where one thing affects another, and looking at the whole of the process flow around that engagement strategy, plus the category management expertise learnt at Unilever, could be very applicable to this particular market. Um, the principles can be applied. It's really about distribution points and value propositions and making sure everything is aligned to executing that uh, seamlessly for the customer. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, from my simple understanding, you know, uh, uh, Simplot, um, uh, Unilever, etc., predominantly a B two C environment. This is a B two B environment, yeah, and they're yeah. a product environment. This is a service environment. Would you say that? Would, would that be right? Would you agree with that? Well, no, I don't necessarily agree with that. So, um, selling uh, the, the, the consumer marketing was utilised to generate demand yeah. for your product or service yeah. for a business customer called Woolworths or Coles. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I found uh, it, we are a B2, we sell um, successfully, um, if you like, our customers sell business to consumer, mm-hmm. but we sell business to business. Yeah, sure. So we have to have a real framework in terms of how much value we create in terms of the demand mm-hmm. by adding payment technologies for their customer, mm-hmm. which is consumer marketing. Yeah. 
but we need to turn that into a sales proposition for the partner or the customer working is from a from a business point of view. Mm-hmm. So we support businesses yep. um, to help them support their customers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So very very similar. In actual fact, I've got a very simple. Um, all growth is a combination of, of of three things: how much, how many, and how often. Right. How much, many, how, and then how often is absolutely whatever business you look at from a um, growth point of view, you need to look at which of those strategies and levers fall under those three categories. Yeah. And then you need to start applying leverage against each one of those. Yeah. I remember studying uh, Jay Abraham's uh, uh, number of customers, number yep. of transactions, average value per that's transaction. It. So that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. I didn't know it was called... Jay Abraham's, he's an American marketing guru. Yeah. So, uh, so, so I've, I use that same process um, for you know 20 years right um, and having that framework or paradigm to look at things through and enables you to create meaningful strategies that um, have a multiplier effect okay. and that's what I look at doing uh, you don't uh, if you can improve all of those three in, mm-hmm. in alignment mm-hmm. you get a much lar- larger multiplier yeah. in terms of the outcome a synergistic effect great and uh, 10 years in the role um, what are the, some of the things that you've used personally in order to continue to develop yourself professionally and continue you know, to remain excited about the future of the business? Mm. Uh, are you somebody that you know, seeks uh, external coaching or support or, or things to help you to continue to grow yourself? That's a very challenging question, Richard. <laughs> Not enough. Conversations like this are quite useful. Right. Um, look, I, I'm self-motivated and I... I'm self-motivated motivated in a way that um, uh, I'm, like a, I'm like a dog chasing a bone. So part of my spiritual every day is, is, is spirituality through performance. Uh-huh. So it, it comes in, it's the same thing. Right. So yes, do I need help from others outside the business? Yeah, I actually think that a lot of the work I've done from an international point of view with those global companies has certainly helped me. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely running out, if you like, of the, uh, the innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I stimulate that by hiring great people who have it and challenge me. So mm-hmm. I'm certainly not a command and control manager. I want to collaborate with people, and I don't want the people who are the same as me. I want them different. Right. I want them different in terms of style, personality, but also in background uh, thinking so that they can help grow an organism, which is our team, yeah. um, that, that enables us to compete effectively in the future. You're avoiding groupthink. But I imagine there are yeah. qualities that you look for across your people, you know, that are, are critically important and yeah. fundamental to a hiring decision. What are some of those things? Well, certainly from the the uh, from a sales point of view, they have to have a couple of things. The first thing they have to be service centric mm-hmm. at any level of the role. You have to want to serve others, and they may well be customers, they may well be teammates, they may well be staff. You have to be service orientated first. Um, then the other thing that I'd ask for it at any level is that there must be uh, capability for commercial vision. Mm-hmm. Because often um, many people will look at markets and papers and research and not have that kernel of knowledge to say, that is the commercial lever here. Mm-hmm. Um, that is where we can create value for our customers. And if we're creating value f- for our customers, we'll be creating value for global payments. It's that incisive commercial vision and thought process 
that um, is critical in any of these roles. And the third one will be a high level of emotional intelligence to then um, replicate and amplify that through the people you work with. Mm -hmm. So those three qualities, I think, are very important. Okay. And so the acquisition was a couple of years ago. If you look towards the future now, you know, what are the things that you're excited for, for global payments and also for yourself personally? Mm. Well, I'm 52, so I'm in the, you know, I've made a decision to go the next three years. Yeah. And I'm very uh, deliberate about making these decisions because as the leader, you can't have one foot in, one foot out. Right, yeah. You've got to be boots and all. So I've signed up for the next three years. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's exciting about that is that um, we will be bringing the Easy Debit and Eway brands together as global payments, have a seamless go-to-market strategy under that branding proposition, and we would have rounded out the technical um, payment platforms that will support that proposition. Mm-hmm. And that proposition is that um, you can go to one supplier that will provide you all of your payment needs rather than going to disparate suppliers. And as a consequence, you're going to enjoy um, considerable benefits around the synergy of those payment types being with one supplier, particularly around business intelligence and analytics, which will take this business really forward over the next... 10 years, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so personally, I, th- I see it as the realisation of uh, you know the, the, the last three years' work being realised in the market and compounding growth from that positioning. Plus, we've restructured the sales team to be able to enable that over the next three years because we have a very clear three-year strategy and then three-year operating plans. So it's about working with people to achieve that overall vision and goal is something I'm interested in doing. And secondly, it's also making sure that we're rounding out professionals in our business that can take greater leadership roles um, in three years' time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the roles I'm looking for really should be looking to replace me when they can. Mm-hmm. And uh, 10 years ago, you were an aspiring CEO. Uh, is that, you know, in your future, do you think? Um, that's a very interesting question. I am a, I am a sales customer expert, mm-hmm. uh, and by that I mean sales marketing expert. I'm good at it. Um, looking at a CEO role in this business, there's an awful lot of compliance and payment technology right. that isn't my... It's not interesting to me, and, it, and it's not my forte. So to run out a CEO role in this sort of environment, you're going to have to be much stronger on IT operational performance, mm-hmm. which is probably not what I want to do. Could I? Uh, would I like to be a CEO in another environment? Look, if that environment was exciting enough that I could do something that is different to what I've currently done, then yes, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly look at that. But it would have to be pretty special. It would need to be something that delivered more than just a revenue. Mm-hmm. I um, did a disc profile once when I was a sales manager mm-hmm. in a business. Are you familiar with disc? Disc measures uh, DIS and C. I can't remember specifically what, mm. uh, but the I is influencing and salespeople mm. are normally at the absolute top of that, mm. but S and C, uh, which is all around compliance and systems, very low. <laughs> and uh, we measured yeah. all of my salespeople and we almost yeah. had the identical disc profile and I'm exactly like you. Yeah. I love the uh, the thrill of the chase and I yeah. love to... Uh, developing uh, capitalise and relationships, but the compliance stuff uh, can be pretty dreary. Yeah, look, um, because we're in financial services, I'm responsible for ensuring that we meet the um, we meet our compliance processes and standards, and I take that very seriously. 
Um, but the art of doing that well is making sure that you can ensure that you're compliant and meet the needs of the customer, mm-hmm. and they see that as value. Mm-hmm. So um, I agree, yeah, it's something that I don't want to spend my life in. Sure. Um, I'll work within it in order to um, get the best outcomes for our customers. But yeah, look, do I want to be a, a CEO? It doesn't drive me. Mm-hmm. Um, do I want to do something worthwhile and make a contribution um, to the areas that I'm in? Absolutely. Now, if that's through a CEO role, so be it. But I don't really see it as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually see it as maybe doing something different in three or four years' mm-hmm. time where I can make a social contribution. Yep. Um, and that's probably where I'm heading. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. One of the main motivations for this podcast is uh, for uh, aspiring CEOs and C-level uh, executives to mm. be able to listen to those mm. who've walked the path before them mm. you know, and learn uh, from uh, some of uh, the experiences of those people. I mean, you've mm. talked a little bit around the way that you lead and the kind of things that are important to you. But if you were to distill some of your key learnings that you've applied to your own career that have enabled you to achieve the success that you have, mm. um, what would they be? Well, I don't think I'd agree with that question, actually. Okay. I actually think I could have been more successful doing different things. Right. But ethically, I don't see it as part of me. So um, I've actually been held back by some of my values. Right. And I'm comfortable with that. But I suppose it depends on how you measure success, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, if you're measuring it purely from, you know, how much money do I earn and, you know, what sort of car do I drive? But mm. success can also be, you know, um, uh, waking up every morning and looking yourself mm. in the mirror and saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm true to who I am. Mm. I think that's important. And I think in business it's very easy to forget that. And I think the lesson I would... I've learned, um, and I'm totally imperfect, of course. Um, the lesson I've learned is that in order to lead people well, you have to keep that. And there's many, many opportunities in life not to. You have to keep? You have to keep the personal integrity mm-hmm. um, um, and the service of others mm-hmm. um, before often service to self. Okay. And uh, I think that if you do that, um, a, that you can live a richer life, but mm-hmm. also you can lead others mm. uh, in an authentic way. And mm-hmm. to me, that's very important. You know, if I was to really encapsulate what I am, I was a rugby team captain at the school and the university. I'm just a sport, a sport captain. Right. And uh, I, I work with those people in those teams in a very mm-hmm. loyal way. Um, in, to achieve um, the best results we possibly can get. And I get my kick out of that and and trusted and trustworthy because I often don't put myself first deliberately. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't sound as though there's much remorse there. I mean, you, you, the, the decisions you've made no. sit comfortably with you. Uh, yeah. So I, I, certainly in my p- position where yeah. I'm recruiting CEOs and C-level executives all day, every day, yeah. I can definitely see examples of where people have con- uh, compromised yeah. their own personal standards in order to win the job or succeed in the job. Yeah. But uh, I would say that I imagine 20, 30 years ago, that would have been much more uh, common uh, than what we're seeing now. Um, I think um, I think you can't stay there mm-hmm. if you're not. Right. So I think um, I think what you're saying is right. Is that um, you know it's. As a sales professional, you, you know, the, the, it's, it's not what you say, it's what you do. And an awful lot of people can say an awful lot of things. And I'm mm-hmm. saying an awful lot of things on this, right. <laughs> this tape. That's good. But I like to do them because I get satisfaction about, around the execution. So, um, 
Yeah, I don't try and judge others. All, all I'd say is, is that I need to be true to myself and mm-hmm. having those values serve others. Um, it actually enables you to serve yourself better too because you get more out of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, do you forego some worldly um, rewards? Yes, but I think that what you'd have to give up sometimes to get those is not worth it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Now, we've talked a lot about business today, but uh, you know, one of the things that you like to do when you're not at work to keep you, uh, uh, the, the petrol tank full, I mean, you mentioned yeah. sailing. Is that something mm. that you do a lot of? Yeah, so I have my own boat. It's 37 years old. It, it, it's moored at Manly here in Brisbane. Right. Uh, it's 30 foot and four and a half tonnes. Uh-huh. Uh, she's an old Catalina. And I enjoy sailing her at weekends, um, just out in the bay, anchoring right. overnight, fishing, swimming, okay. nice. cranking it up, getting uh-huh. it going. And you're obviously a bit of a sports tragic as well. Yeah, look, I, I like to play sports. So I played soccer, joined a soccer club for the first time at 48, right. uh, uh, four years ago. And I got the prize for the most improved player, <laughs> which tells you how crap I was. But right. um, I broke my ankle and got carried off. And uh-huh. then I thought, okay, well, I'll reinvigorate the glories of my hockey career. Right. Started hockey the, the year after and then broke my hand and, and I've got uh, a pl- uh, plate in there. Oh, really? So okay. uh, I've retired from um, competitive sports. But right. I, uh, yeah, sailing and tennis I like to play. Okay, fantastic. Bushwalking and getting out about nature is important to me. Oh, good. Well, look, uh, Rob, I know that you're a bit pressed for time today. So before we wrap it up, is there anything else that you'd like to add or anything you'd like to leave the listeners with before we uh, close out the conversation? No, I mean, I've got nothing to um, to advise you or um, I don't know you well enough. I'm just speaking into a microphone. Other than to say, Richard, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about myself because I often don't. And it was remarkably easy. Yes. So I'm sorry if I bored you and carried on. But um, if I could leave you one thing, it's it's really about, you know, working here at Global and particularly working for me, we need people who want to grow and and uh, self-actualize mm-hmm. um, and bring that to others in the business so we get this kind of organic process of growth and renewal and energy. Um, we perform well above our weight mm-hmm. and punch well above our weight, and that's because we have very close team functions and cultures mm-hmm. that's bred on diversity and respect, um, but also a very keen will to win. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, uh, I'd, I'd love to sit down with you and have another conversation. That, that little comment you made, spirituality through performance, has uh, really resonated with me. I think that there's probably at least a couple of hours podcast interview in that. But anyway, look, uh, thanks very much. Have a fantastic afternoon and a, a great weekend. And are you mm. sailing this weekend? Uh, no, because I've got to get it out and anti-foul it, but oh, um, I won't okay. be doing that. Excellent. Okay. Well, thanks, Rob. Thanks. Richard. Okay. Well, thanks again for joining us today on the Arate podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week. Music.